Hey folks, Scott Weingart here. I'm in New York City, and it's winter here. It's been a pretty mild winter, but still, we've had a few patients come in, in cardiac arrest, profoundly hypothermic. And you know the axiom, no patient's dead until they're warm and dead. Which is wonderful to say, but what does it actually mean? Well, that's what we're going to explore on the podcast today. So, let's talk about this. You really have two classes of patients. You have the patients who are pretty cold, but they're not in cardiac arrest, and they're uh, not profoundly hypothermic. And then you have the other group. So, let's deal with the easy one first. If patients come in 32 degrees Celsius or higher then you don't have to do any extraordinary measures. If you put them in a corner with some warm blankets, uh, they're eventually going to rewarm, and they'll do it themselves, and they'll do it about a degree an hour is the average, and they'll be just fine, unless it really wasn't an environmental exposure hypothermia, unless there was something else going on. Now, what could these something else's be? Well, one of the big ones you better rule out right up front is hypoglycemia. If your sugar gets low, you can't produce the energy to make heat, and you can be really hypothermic. I've had patients come in, no environmental exposure, you know, 30, 32 degrees Celsius, just from hypoglycemia. So that uh, needs to be taken care of. You don't want to wait for this patient to rewarm for a couple hours before you find out that their sugar is 26. What else? Alcohol causes vasodilation. It's going to make any environmental exposure much, much worse. Malnutrition, and then you get the uh, metabolic ones like Addison's and myxedema. And then sepsis is the last but probably most important of the players. So if you get a patient who comes in at greater than 32 degrees and they're not rewarming appropriately, uh, screen them for this stuff, which means obviously finger stick up front. You send off your CBC, your basic electrolytes, and then your thyroid function studies, a cortisol level, and some blood cultures. If you can't find out what's going on, you might consider empirically treating these patients with antibiotics. I should make one last remark about these folks. They might be bradycardic. That's appropriate. If you're at around 32, 33 degrees, your heart rate should be 40 with a sinus brady. So don't go nuts on these guys thinking that's the problem. It's not. As they rewarm, their heart rate will come up. Anyone doing induced hypothermia knows this, and it's a, it's a big stumbling block for people uh, when we send them upstairs after we've induced hypothermia, and we have their temp down to 32 degrees, and now they want to put pacemakers in or discontinue hypothermia because the heart rate is at 38. It's normal. Don't get scared. As long as there's no heart block or anything, just let it sit. These patients should be hemodynamically stable with that. It's appropriate to their current metabolic state. Leave them alone. And that, that's basically all you really need to know about these patients who come in cold, but not super cold and relatively stable. All right, now that we got that stuff out of the way, let's deal with the really enjoyable stuff to talk about, which is the patients who come in less than 30 degrees Celsius, less than 32 degrees Celsius, and they're unstable, or they might even be coding in front of you. How do you rewarm these patients? That is the question. These patients require active rewarming. You can't just put them in a corner with some warm blankets. So what are you going to do? Well, the first thing is you need a temp probe. You can't sit there and uh, expect that you're going to stick the tympanic monitor in their ears and you're going to be able to get temperature. So that, that's not workable. What they need is preferably 
an esophageal probe. And that's what we use, and you should have the ability to do this anyway. So you could do uh, therapeutic hypothermia. You need in your ED some way that you could monitor an esophageal probe. Now, all the monitors out there currently have cartridges that will let you attach esophageal temperature probes to them. So if you don't have it, talk to your biomed department. Tell them you want it. Tell them you need this. It has to be done. Or, like us, you might have a machine that you use for your therapeutic hypothermia. You could just use the temp probe portion of that without wasting blankets uh, just as a monitor of temperature. And that's what we do. We just grab one of our hypothermia machines and we slip a esophageal probe down. If you need to know how to do that, I have a video on what to do when you're having trouble getting it down, and I will link to that in the show notes. Now, some people ask, can we use a rectal probe? Well, if that's where you like to go, you just knock yourself out. It's kind of messy and kind of annoying, and you have to stop doing what you're doing and roll the patient and stop your CPR. And And if you're going to do that, it really needs to be shoved up there quite a distance. Uh, 15 centimeters is ideal because what happens is, you know, their outsides of their body is so cold and you want a core temp and, and you just don't want it hanging out in some stool right at the uh, anal verge. That's not going to work out so well. So really you got to thread it up there. And they don't, these things don't thread so well if you've ever played with, I, I don't, I just don't like this whole rectal probe idea. I'm, I'm not an alien. And I, I just don't want to be associated with any of that. So I like esophageal. If you have a central line that has a thermistor tip that will monitor temperature, you knock yourself out. I don't, I don't have these, and I'm not going to place a PA catheter either. So for me, the core temp is monitored esophageally. Now we want to start active rewarming. Now, there's a whole bunch of, you know, putative ways to do this, but most of them are not workable. Uh, warm IV fluids do not warm the patient. They just keep them from getting colder from the fluids itself, but you get no significant warming. So if you're going to give fluids for another purpose, then make sure they're warm because you don't want to make the patient colder. But don't think that you're going to you know, pop a level one on these patients and all of a sudden they're going to warm up. They won't. So don't give them any extra fluid if they don't need it just to think that's going to get them warm. But these hypothermia patients do need a bunch of fluid. Um, they probably had some cold diuresis before this, and they're, uh, they're going to have fluid shifts. And, and so giving them some fluid is not a bad idea. And if you're going to do that, make it warm fluid. Warm oxygen is a good idea. Um, these patients, if they're sick, this is the category we're talking about, are probably going to wind up intubated, especially if they're in cardiac arrest, obviously. So uh, if you can, turn your ventilator to actually heat and humidify that air because humidified air actually is a better conductor of heat, then, then that's a good thing. And you could actually get some degree of rewarming from that. And it's, it's, not, it's not to be left at. You get about a degree and a half an hour from warmed humidified oxygen going through an ET tube. So uh, if your vents could do that, great. Our, ours don't, or they need an external adapter to do it, which I don't have. So um, there you go. But if yours can do it, then that's good. Do that. It's not going to be the, the lion's share of your warming efforts, but every little bit helps. Warming blankets are okay for those patients who are above 32 if you wanted something extra. And I, I don't have a problem with you putting them on these sick patients. You know, it might help a little, but it's probably not going to do a lot. The uh, Arctic Sun-type blankets are probably more effective, though I, I've seen no data on it for the accidental hypothermia patients, but they're expensive, you know. 
1500 two grand each. And I'm not sure if you're going to keep taking these on and off to do CPR and other stuff, if that's really a great use of those funds. If you have one of the catheter hypothermia devices, that's probably worth placing. That'll give you pretty good rewarming rates. So if you have one of those Alceus catheters or what have you, then put one of those in. Um, that, that's probably going to be a good way to go. So what else? Peritoneal lavage? I don't think so. The warming rates aren't horrible with this, but it's kind of shifty. I'm, I mean, I don't know how many ED docs are doing closed DPLs anymore, but I got to imagine it's not many. And I train in this, and even for me, I don't really like sticking things in the abdomen blindly unless there's a huge pocket of ascites for me to land in, and there's not going to be in these patients. So I don't like the peritoneal lavage concept. It's just an area you don't want to muck with. You, you don't stay away from that belly. That's the domain of the gen surge folks, and they have enough problems when they enter and they're there that you don't want to be a part of. So what do we have left? Well, we really have two things. We have bypass or some form of extracorporeal warming and thoracic lavage. Let's talk about the latter first because I think this is going to be the mainstay in most EDs. Thoracic lavage could get you between 3 to 6 degrees Celsius per hour. It's pretty good. And it's probably the technique of choice, but the question is how to make it work. Because, you know, all these books, all these articles talk about, oh, do thoracic lavage. And then when you actually get there with these two chest tubes in your hand and you're looking down at the patient, you're like, how the hell do I make this work? Well, here on MCRIT, we're all about translating this stuff to actuality as opposed to potentiality. So let's talk it through. The classic described approach is one anterior chest tube in that third intercostal space, second intercostal space, and another one laterally. I don't like doing anterior chest tubes. I, I think uh, because of all the stuff I talked about in that needle versus knife show, uh, if you're going in the anterior chest and you don't know what you're doing, you can really muck things up. And I don't see any advantage to it either. So here's what I do. I get there in that standard spot. I'm going to place chest tubes um, in that you know fourth or fifth intercostal space, mid-axillary line. And I'm going to plan on putting two chest tubes in that area. So for the first one, I go a little bit closer to the anterior axillary line. And for the second one, I go a little bit towards the posterior axillary line. And they're se separated by you know an inch or two just to keep some separation. But the key is when you're placing these is to try to get one to go anterior and up and the other one to go posterior and down. And if it doesn't happen, it'll still work out, but that's the ideal, uh, is you get these chest tubes placed in the same general spot in the chest in terms of entry, but their tips, which is what matters, are placed uh, in opposite directions. And I like 32 French tubes for this, but anything will really work, but I'll explain why I like 32s in just a sec. But the classically described approach in the books is you use a big chest tube, like a 36. But I'll get these two 32s in there, uh, just like you'd place a standard chest tube. And I'll sew them up to the chest, and now you gotta find something that allows an interface between IV tubing and one of your chest tubes, the anterior chest tube. What I found is that the adapter that comes in my Salem sump and G tubes, that actually attaches the suction tubing to the Salem sump, actually is perfect for this. I have pictures of this in the show notes, but I will, to that anterior chest tube, I will place one of these Salem sump adapters and then attach the end of my level one 
to that anterior chest tube. To the posterior chest tube, I just put a Pluravac. So now you have a system where you could actually use the level one to put warmed 40 degrees Celsius fluid through the anterior chest tube. It's going to flow around the chest and come out the posterior chest tube. And I will just keep putting bags of saline up on that level one until the patient is where I want in terms of temperature. So that's how to make this happen. Two chest tubes to the anterior one, the adapter of a Salem sump. This might not work with your Salem sump, so you have to find something that will wedge into your size chest tube and then fit perfectly into the end of an IV line from a level one device. So I found mine, you gotta find yours. Posterior chest tube goes to a Pluravac. Now, which side of the chest? I go left in a patient in cardiac arrest because I want the heart bathed with maximal warm saline because that's what I need to heat up in order to get the patient to convert to a perfusing rhythm. So I go left chest, two chest tubes, one anterior, one posterior, level one hooked up, and continuous bathing with warm saline. In a patient with a pulse, you're probably better off going in the right chest because you don't want to accidentally jab your chest tube up against the heart and possibly precipitate a dysrhythmia. In a cardiac arrest in actuality, if they're not rewarming quickly, I put them on both sides. So we actually have four chest tubes in, two level one devices, and continuous bathing of both sides of the chest. And for that, you might even get around six degrees Celsius with those chest tubes. All right. Let's say you have the ability to do extracorporeal warming. In a patient in cardiac arrest, it's probably a good way to go because if you get them on bypass, you don't have to do continuous CPR, which you would have to do otherwise. I don't have bypass. If you're Joe Belezzo out in uh, San Diego, then you could just do it yourself. We can't do that. Is there any other options? There are. We already mentioned you could place them on a, like a catheter therapeutic hypothermia machine. That'll work well. You could actually put in a dialysis catheter if you could get your dialysis guys to come down, which I know is super tough. But if you could do it, that machine will heat these patients up. It has a roller pump. It'll suck out one side of the catheter, heat up the blood, put it back in the other side. And that will work quite nicely. Um, that'll work for both regular dialysis machines or the continuous venous-venous uh, hemodialysis machines that we're used to when you've done SICU training. A guy at U Washington, I believe his name is Gentilio, uh, actually created a device that hooks into the level one. It's heparin bonded. It'll go from an A-line, suck out the arterial blood, run it through the level one, which is a countercurrent heat exchanger, and send it back into a venous catheter. So all you'd have to do is place two cortices and hook it up to this level one tubing, and you'd have continuous arterial venous um, rewarming. And so this is pretty cool. One of our attendings at Shock Trauma used to keep one of these in his office, but I've never seen it anywhere else. I know Level 1 was making this purpose-made for a while. I've gone to their site. I can't find this anymore. They might have stopped manufacturing it. But this was a cool way of being able to essentially have a arterial venous rewarming circuit with just the devices you have in your ED. Now, here's the big question, and I haven't found a good answer to this yet, is when to stop. When is a patient warm and dead? And... I can't find this answer anywhere. If you know the answer to this, write in in the comments. Because when I was an ACLS instructor in the, uh, in the early 90s, I think I remember there being an actual temperature. And I want to say that temperature was 30 degrees Celsius. If you get them up to 30, you could stop if they're still not perfusing. Um, but now all those references to a specific number have disappeared. Now, in other literature besides the ACLS guidelines... There's numbers bandied around. 
I've seen 32. I've seen 30. I've seen crazy stuff like 34. You're not going to get these dead patients up to 34 unless you have bypass. So good luck on that. For me, I'm shooting for 30. That's my number unless one of you has a better reference to send me another way. If you get them up to 30 and they're still not perfusing, then I, I say you could call the code. Maybe that number's 32. I don't know. Some of you have to find this out and help us. But 30 to 32, if they're still not perfusing, you call the code. What are we going to talk about last? There's some little changes in what you do in terms of ACLS for these patients who are in cardiac arrest. If they come in in V-fib and they're below 30 degrees Celsius, you should probably take one chance at shocking them and then not do it anymore, even if they stay in V-fib. Keep warming them until they get to 30 and only then try additional defibrillation attempts. Uh, because if you keep shocking these guys, uh, it, it actually probably is going to make things worse. Just do good CPR, do your bilateral thoracic lavage or your extracorporeal warming until they hit 30. And then usually if you give them one like counter shock, or I should say defibrillation at that point, boom, they're back in a perfusing rhythm. So that, that's the electricity stuff. There's also drug alterations. I give these guys one hit of epinephrine when they first get there with the profound hypothermia code, and then nothing more, again, until they hit around 30, 32 degrees, and they could actually metabolize this stuff. So I give them one shot of epi, and I call it a day on drugs until I get them up to temp. So that, that's the way I play these guys. Let's say you had them with severe hypothermia, you know, 26, 28 degrees, but for some reason they're still in a perfusing rhythm. I would do everything the same, except for these guys. I'd put on some warming blankets with uh, my hypothermia machine. I'd do a right-sided thoracic lavage, and I do really gentle care on these guys. If you jostle them all around too much, that perfusing rhythm might easily go to ventricular fibrillation. So you just want to very gently, calmly get these guys up to above 30, 32, and then they're probably going to be safe, and then they could just continue rewarming without you having to worry too much. Now, I told you that you shouldn't worry about bradycardia on these patients, but what if they're in heart block? and they're profoundly cold. Can you place a pacing wire? And there's a lot of debate about this because the fear is always you're gonna precipitate V-fib. One article that I put in the show notes from Academic Emergency Medicine says that it is safe if you need to do it, but I would be very careful not to smack that wire against the heart walls any more than you need to to make this work. So let's sum it all up. If they're greater than 32, screen them for predisposing conditions, stick them in a corner, uh, put on some warming blankets or just some normal blankets, uh, let them breathe some heated oxygen if you have it, and they'll rewarm unless something else is going on, like bad sepsis, in which case, treat that. If they're less than 32 without cardiac arrest, I like right-sided thoracic lavage or some form of extracorporeal warming if you have it, and it's easy to do, but I wouldn't place these patients on bypass, obviously, if they have a perfusing rhythm. But if you get a dialysis catheter in there and bring the HD folks down, that'll be a nice way to go. But chances are, if they have a perfusing rhythm and you do that thoracic lavage or even just your hypothermia machine blankets or catheter, they'll rewarm nicely. The tough situation is when they're in cardiac arrest. What do you do? I do bilateral thoracic lavage, two level ones, four chest tubes, using the adapter system I jerry-rigged, get them warm. If you have uh, the ability to do bypass, this is a good patient for that. And keep going until you get 30, 32 degrees. If they're still without a perfusing rhythm and they're not in something that's shockable like V-fib, it might be time to call it a day, though I have no precise 
references for those numbers anymore. All right, I think we've talked enough about accidental hypothermia. Uh, I'll just finish up by putting a plug in. Mac Moyetti, who you might remember from the KXLate rant, wrote in. They're doing a course at the University of Maryland for life-saving procedures. It's a cadaver lab. I've never taken this course, but I know the people doing it, and they're amazing. So I'm going to put the flyer for that in the show notes. If you're around the Maryland area in April and you want a lab to find how to do those life-saving procedures you might remember from residency but haven't done since, check it out. Mac Moyetti wrote me. He's a fantastic guy. And let me give you the actual dates on this. April 17th, 2012 at the University of Maryland. If you are available, go check it out. The information is in the show notes. So this is Scott Weingart for the MCRIT Podcast saying stay warm.